Good morning, and thanks for joining me on this Tuesday morning. Another nice day. Saskatchewan shattered a whole bunch of records yesterday. Maple Creek, by the way, was not one of them. Almost 15 degrees in Maple Creek, and that was not a record for them. And today, it's likely going to be pumped up warmer than that. Much of the province seeing warm temperatures plus temperatures, double digits in especially the south and southwest part of the province. So, man, we have a nice day ahead of us. We've got a full show ahead of us as well. We're going to talk about a variety of different things. A group of Canadians have taken a trip over to Israel to assess the situation over there, understand the conflict from the Israeli point of view since that Hamas attack in October the 7th. We will be checking in with one of those Canadians live from Israel just after 9 this morning. Doug Cuthand, who... You often have the opportunity to read in the Star Phoenix or the Leader Post. He writes columns on a regular basis there. Recently wrote a column in the Star Phoenix on his thoughts about what steps need to be focused on to prevent another tragedy like the James Smith Green Nation tragedy from happening again. We're going to check in with Doug just a little bit later on this morning. Also, winter holidays, supposed to be a dreamy getaway from the bitter cold of winter, Instead, for many, they're turning into a bit of a bitter nightmare. Flight cancellations, lost trips, stranded in airports. There is an air passenger rights organization who is fighting for you. We're going to check in with its founder this morning. That and a whole lot more, so I invite you to stick around. It's going to be a good chat. First, let's start off with the big talker. Let's get down to business, shall we? Welcome. Let's begin the evan bray show the big talker well we have been following this now for a couple of weeks the inquest into the deaths on james smith cree nation and nearby weldon that happened on september the 4th of 2022 miles sanderson went on a killing rampage 11 people killed 17 injured three days later he was located taken into custody and then shortly after died from the drug that he ingested just prior to the arrest. And as a result, we have two inquests. The first one is happening and is going on right now. We're actually into week three. Senior reporter Lisa Schick has been in Malfort from day one of the inquest and joins me again today. Lisa, thanks so much. This is uh, week three. This has been a long haul for you. Yeah, you know, it's been it's been uh, a lot of days, a lot of witnesses, a lot of uh, stuff going on here, Melford. And we are now reaching the conclusion of it. Let's first focus on what did we hear yesterday in terms of testimony? Well, first we heard from a member of the Parole Board of Canada. Now, she wasn't making any decisions about Miles Sanderson, but she did um, talk a little bit more about kind of the policies and how they make their decisions. One of the things that she explained was that when it comes to statutory release, which is what Miles Sanderson got, remember, parole is kind of a a privilege, I guess, if you will, statutory release is a legislated right. Um, When you are considered for that, the only way that you can't get out is if you are put into detention, you get a detention order. But she explained that to get a detention order, you have to be kind of referred for that by corrections. That gets referred to the parole board, and then they kind of make the decision on that. But there was never any detention referrals for Miles Sanderson, so there was no situation where the parole board couldn't give him that statutory release. All they could do was impose uh, special conditions. It's, we also, 
It's all right. I was I was just going to say it's interesting because was there not also testimony that there was a referral to the parole board that his parole should be revoked the second time and they de- determined it might be best to leave him in the community and manage manage his conditions there? Yeah, his parole officer in the community at the time when he broke his first conditions and he got brought back in told the pro- parole board, yeah, I, I think it's, he's an undue um, risk to the community. He should stay in. They decided not to do that. Um, there are some some kind of specific reasons or, or ways that they make those decisions. And uh, the woman explained, you know, this is a situation where they take a lot of things into consideration when they make these decisions. It's not just uh, the opinion of the parole officer. So what else yesterday, Lisa, was, uh, was heard during the testimony? We also heard from uh, two elders who kind of dealt with Miles in the prison system. Um, there are several elders who are employed in prisons in Saskatchewan to kind of run the, the cultural aspect of a lot of the programming that they have to kind of help uh, inmates get back to their roots, get back to their culture, gain some of that that they might not have had in, in, in the hopes of helping them heal, you know. And so we heard from these two people, and they talked about um, some of what they helped Miles with, some of what they did, and and they said, you know, he wasn't, like, remarkable to them. He wasn't out of the ordinary. He was a, a pretty normal guy. They both said he was pretty respectful when they dealt with him. But what struck me is they were two of the few witnesses who actually had some ideas on recommendations on how to improve things. And what they both said was that there needs to be more support for inmates once they get out of prison. When you're in prison, it's pretty easy to follow these programs because everything's regimented. You have to go here. You have to go there. Everything's provided for you. But once you get out into the community, you have to go find it. It's harder to find. It's harder to get there. So it's it's easier to fall off. Lisa, I'm curious to know, as I listen to your reports, and, and you've done such a good job reporting this out every day, uh, updates on our website. If we follow you on social media, you've done literally minute-by-minute minute reports on testimony. So thanks for that. It, it seems to me as it's not always an accurate story or picture that they're getting while someone is in custody and being interviewed to determine whether or not they should be released. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that inmates will always say what they need to say, but, you know, they're, you said it yourself, they're in a controlled environment, they're being interviewed about a potential release, but hard for even them to speculate what that's going to look like when they're returned back to the same community, the same challenges that they faced prior to incarceration without those types of supports. I just don't feel like, like we're getting an accurate representation of the danger that is being released into the community. Well, you know, that's that's the big question here, right? Because you hear from all these people who were in corrections and kind of the global picture that we're getting of Miles is that he felt bad for what he did. He understood that he had problems and he wanted to fix them. He wanted to be a better man. He wanted to be a better dad. But I guess there are questions around do you believe that he was in fear or do you think that he was just telling everybody in the system what they wanted to hear from mm-hmm. him so that he could get out? And I mean, that question had been posed to a few people and they said they felt like he was being sincere. You know, they deal with people who kind of lie to them on a, on a regular basis and they didn't feel like he was lying. And certainly it is a situation, as you say, where 
in prison, it can be harder to get stuff. I mean, there were some people who said there are drugs in prison. If you want to get those drugs, you can get them. But Miles, he never failed any any drug tests, any sobriety tests that were in there. They didn't really he didn't really give them reason to have him tested because he wasn't acting strange. He wasn't acting as though he had fallen off the wagon when he was in prison. So another another thing that you heard testimony to yesterday was basically where Miles Sanderson was between the killing spree that he went on and when he was eventually located on that Wednesday. Yeah, we heard from uh, Sergeant Evan Anderson, who's with Major Crimes with the RCMP, and this wasn't this was doesn't really have anything to do with this inquest. It's just kind of meant to bridge the gap between this inquest and the next one that's happening in a month on Miles Sanderson's death, and they talked about. You know, between, you know, September 4th, um, when the killings happened and September 7th, when he was caught, I mean, you remember there were tips that he was all over mm-hmm. Western Canada. They got tips all the way from BC to Manitoba and there were searches all over. Um, there was that emergency alert that went out in Regina, but we, we found out yesterday was that RCMP believe he was never really more than an hour, hour and a half away from James Smith. He committed his last killing in Weldon, uh, Wesley Pedersen, unfortunately. Then he went to the Crystal Springs area. The vehicle that he was in, that black Nissan Rogue, ran out of gas. He kind of ran it into a bush, um, like a copse of trees, and butt was sticking out there. And then he just kind of camped in the bush near Waka. He was apparently breaking into a nearby garage and stealing food and bedding, and then camping in the trees until the 7th when he went out and he stole that white avalanche and was eventually caught. Mm-hmm. What What is left uh, now? Is it now over to the jury, Lisa? Yeah, this morning uh, the coroner is going to charge the jury, kind of give them their marching orders, what they need to figure out, how they're going to do it, and then really we wait. I know that there is um, some talk that this actually could be a couple days of waiting. The jury... Not only do they have to come up with some recommendations, again, on how to try to stop this kind of thing from happening again, but they also have to make the official determination of the cause of death, time of death, those kind of things, for all 11 victims. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. There, I mean, we've said it before. This is the largest inquest in Saskatchewan history, for sure, rivaling probably one of the largest in Canadian history. So it uh, may take them a while to get there, but I know, Lisa, you are going to continue to follow this along, and we will check in with you again a little bit later in the week. Thanks so much for giving us some time this morning. All right, thanks. Lisa Schick, senior reporter, following the inquest into the James Smith Cree Nation. And don't forget, we talked about this a couple of times, an inquest happens in a couple of ways. An inquest is a mandatory thing that that will happen in our province when a death occurs to a person that's either in custody, could be in a jail or a correctional facility, or in custody with police. And so there is an inquest coming up at the end of February into the death of Miles Sanderson, because remember, he was arrested by the RCMP, placed in the back of a police car, and it was literally a couple of minutes after being placed in that police car, he went into medical distress and ultimately died. So that is considered an in-custody death, and there's a mandatory inquest that has to happen there. Now, a discretionary inquest is one that the chief coroner can decide on where he or she feels it's in the best interest of the public. There are unanswered questions. We need to get to the bottom of a situation, which clearly this 
James Smith Cree Nation incident was one of the largest our province has ever seen in terms of, of tragedy, killings, these types of things. And so Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill said, I am calling at my discretion an inquest, and that's the one that we've been listening to. So, you know, the the, the work that's being done there isn't about necessarily finding fact or finding fault. It's also not a civil or a criminal proceeding. It's it's basically uh, to determine the identity of the deceased, how, when, where, and by what means they died. And Lisa just talked about that. 11 people died that Sunday. And as a result, they will be determined based on the testimony they heard what the cause of death was. Also, it's a way to inform the public of all of the details around it. We've learned a lot of details here, even just what Lisa was talking about, the location of Miles Sanderson in that time between the tragic massacre that happened and when he was finally arrested. And then ultimately to find ways that we can prevent these things from happening again. And that, to me, is the essence of this inquest is, are there changes that can be made, whether it's to systems like social services, uh, probations, parole, policing, the systems, do they need changing? Is there supports, community groups that need to be involved? There's likely a lot that could come from this. And I mentioned earlier, Doug Cuthan just wrote a column to the Star Phoenix and the Leader Post about his thoughts of some recommendations and some changes that need to happen as a result of this. So we are going to catch up with Doug in uh, just a little bit more then half an hour from now, and we will we'll dig into this a little bit more. But it's uh, it's a big one for sure. We will follow closely, and as I said, senior reporter Lisa Schick continues to stay in Melfort, and we'll follow this through until the recommendations happen. We've already chatted with Chief Coroner Clive Wayhill, who has agreed to come on the show as well. Once this is done, the inquest is done, the recommendations are out. We'll have a sit down with Clive Wayhill and talk a bit about the process of putting it together. Uh, in hindsight, are there any things he would have done different in planning this inquest, including who would be allowed to testify? And then, of course, steps forward based on the recommendations that will be coming up as well. You're listening to 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. Oh, we just had Lisa Schick join us talking about the James Smith Cree Nation inquest that's going on. And I feel like, you know, when we listen to to discussion around how parole makes their decisions about whether or not a person should be kept in custody or sent back to the community and have the conditions managed there. You know, Miles Sanderson was released with conditions, uh, no drugs or alcohol, not to associate with people committing crimes or doing those substances, no contact with victims or families, um, even having to report any sexual or non-relationship with a woman uh, needs to be reported and approved. If we don't have supports there, if all we're doing is turning the person back out, why are we shocked that they're going to breach those conditions? This is part of the problem with releasing especially dangerous offenders back into the community without supports, expecting that they can be managed and maintained by the systems that are there. Clearly, it doesn't work. I will be shocked if we don't see a recommendation from the jury on this inquest that speaks specifically to how they determine whether they're going to release someone and if they are released, whether or not the supports are in place in the community. We're going to talk a little bit more about this 
coming up. Uh, teachers as well. We didn't even delve into that yet. They've got another rotating strike that is going to be starting as of Thursday of this week. That and a whole lot more still to come this morning. Thanks so much for joining us right here on 980 CJME and 650 CKOM.